0: Well, good morning to all of you. We are in Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. I'm excited about our study together of this book. In our midweek study in Turlock this past Wednesday, we were talking about how Philippians is a type of what's called a friendship letter. It has all the, all the features of what was common in Greece and Rome at that time. I even told them that it was common in, in the education of of children to teach them how to write letters. So just like we teach essays today, they taught them how to write letters. And there were twenty-one different types. And this friendship letter was Philippians. Romans, very different. Romans is an apologetic. It is a, a argument of defense that builds and builds and builds to prove a point. And this point is already becoming evident as we are in Romans chapter one, that let all Men, all mouths be silent before the Lord. There's no excuse, for we are without excuse. We know, we see the evidence of God and the things that are made. We have been given so many blessings, whether it's the Jew or the Gentile, as Paul will continue to bring out in these chapters ahead. And therefore, what hope is there? And that's where Romans begins to build what was done by the Lord on behalf of the people that he draws to himself. So let's stand as we read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the Creator creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, that's a heavy section. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as, as these words almost wash over us and, and weigh us down, just a single word at a time, ruthlessness, uh, the gravity of what you've described here, Lord. I pray that we would be sober-minded as we listen and hear your word, Lord, that we would take in what you would speak to us today, that we would be ready to learn, to heed, to obey, Lord, to love those who are in darkness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, I preached on this particular passage several years ago in our series on engaging our culture, and I'm at the same time mindful of the fact that some of you weren't here with us, so indulge me if I just briefly review what I said then, and then afterwards focus on some relevant aspects of this passage that we haven't talked about before. But in going back to verse 18, we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that word suppress in Greek means to hold down and restrain. And some of you have tried to hold down and restrain a child throwing a tantrum. So have you tried to restrain an angry friend and knew what it's like to hold down and restrain what this word means in Greek? I think of 1990, when Wendy and I were replacing our waterbed, and yes, yeah, you're already laughing, some of you older ones. We were one of those couples in the 80s who had a waterbed, though in Wendy's defense, she never was too excited that I brought it into our marriage, but... Anyway, we had decided it's time to move on from this, and we had emptied out as much water as we could from the mattress and decided we'd try to get the waterbed out of the door and over onto the patio. But as you can imagine, every time we tried to hold one part of the mattress, the water would shift to another part of the mattress, like that oozy blob, right? And it slowly worked its way around us, and eventually enough, the water and the mattress were behind us, we couldn't hold back the weight anymore, and we all tumbled down off the patio and onto the ground. And what we experienced was, was like that cartoon character, right? Who in the cartoons, there, he's at the dam and there's a hole in the dam and he tries to plug it with one finger and then that pressure causes another hole to come up and he, he puts another finger there and pretty soon he's got feet and hands on all different parts of the dam and eventually what happens? The, the whole dam comes and gives way. Well, what's being illustrated from all of that is that the truth wants to come out. After all, verse 19 says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And verse 20 says that this truth is clearly perceived. It always has been. And why is that important? It's important because unbelief is not the result of ignorance. Unbelief is not the result of ignorance. It is the result of purposefully suppressing a truth that wants to break out. And just like Wendy and and me with all of our strength trying to hold back that mattress or, or that cartoon character giving up every available finger and toe, suppressing God's truth is unnatural and requires a constant effort. And truth in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, is not simply something to which a person is supposed to file away and give agreement. It is meant to be obeyed because truth is a person, ultimately. It's God. And response to that truth results in relationship and glory. Our family and and often some of our extended family members and friends, during summer nights, we will on occasion all get together for nights and lay out on the front yard on a a blanket and eat popcorn and watch for meteors while we try to identify the constellations and marvel at what God has made. See, we were created to see God's invisible attributes clearly manifested in, in the things around us. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God created us to be a people of faith. Think about that. God created us to be a people of faith and to respond to the truth evident in the created order by worshiping God, by glorifying Him, by being in relationship with Him. And we bear a spirit and a mind that was meant to naturally see and acknowledge through faith God's work. Well, what happened? Sin happened. Sin happened. And it is our unrighteousness, our sin nature that causes us to press down, hold back, restrain what is plainly the truth. And so that's why you can have men and women looking at the billions of stars and the complexity and order of nature. They can see the amazing intricacy of a a spider's web. They can understand the hundreds of linear Uh, chemical reactions that have to take place in order for the human being to see. Or they look out and see the perfect tilt of the earth and the balance of water and the mixture of gases in the atmosphere. And in all of it, they see the evidence of God's work plainly before them. Or as David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, there's no place. There's no secret place where you go in this world and not hear the voice of God. It says the voice goes out through all the earth to the ends of the world. So man sees those attributes with his eyes. But he also acknowledges that truth internally as Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts. He's put eternity in our hearts which is that capacity, that desire, that need for something ultimate that goes beyond us and yet as this truth tries to seep out through the hardened heart just like trying to plug a leaking dam these men and women suppress or hold that truth back down again exchanging the truth For a lie. And that may seem like a simple point, but the implications are not simple. Because we always hear how it is faith that removes the power of sin. In other words, we're told that an unbeliever comes to a point where he or she becomes frustrated and and concerned by the destruction that sin has brought in his or her life and that he or she sits down and and reasons it out, thinks about the evidence and and, and maybe what you told him and what this person said, and then chooses to believe in God as the most rational explanation and certainly what he or she needs in that moment to get over the sin pattern in his or her life. And then God responds to that faithful reaching out to God and breaks the power of sin. But Romans 1 suggests exactly the opposite of that. Paul tells us that the natural response, think about that, friends, the natural response of a man or a woman to the evidence of God all around is what? The response of faith. It is sin that suppresses and restrains that truth. It is sin that has to be dealt with, not a lack of understanding or a lack of willingness. That means for someone to become a person of faith as he or she was created to be naturally, God must first break the power of sin. He must cause us to stop restraining the truth. And that's important because if God's activity precedes our response of faith, then we have a great confidence, right, in areas like evangelism. Like I said last week, evangelism is about proclaiming the gospel eloquently or ineloquently, and the telling of that good news is is not about being persuasive. It is about simply letting the word of God speak for itself. And it's also helpful to recognize that the fault doesn't lie with us for being ineffective when we point to what God has made and say, see, there's the evidence of God. Why won't you believe? Can I tell you any clearer? Can I give you more evidence? Can we talk about this argument? Can we talk about that argument? Can we look at what's going on in your life? John Calvin wrote this, it is therefore in vain that so many burning lamps shine for us in the workmanship of the universe to show forth the glory of its author. Although they bathe us wholly in their radiance, yet they can of themselves in no way lead us to the right path. Surely they strike some sparks, but before their fuller light shines forth, these are smothered. See what's going on? That's that restraining, that suppressing that's taking place. Those sparks are smothered, stamped out. Get away is the attitude. And Calvin finishes, but although we lack the natural ability to mount up unto the pure and clear knowledge of God, all excuse is still cut off because the fault of dullness, the, the one stamping out the spark, is us. And so the fault of dullness is not in your arguments. It's within Man. So what Paul tells us is that the Holy Spirit regenerates the human heart, causes a person to stop. Stop. Let the truth speak for itself. Acknowledge the truth. And it's when the Holy Spirit does that to the human heart that the person inevitably will respond with faith. You don't have to persuade a person to respond in faith to the truth that they will finally stop stamping out. So, when the gospel is preached, whether persuasively or not, the heart that is changed by God will no longer suppress the truth of what you're being said. And that is why the Bible, in another place, will say that they become the aroma of life, they become sweet, wonderful words. Maybe you've experienced, remember that experience in your life, or even after you've heard something said by another about the Word of God. Maybe it was uh, in a conversation that you were having. Maybe it was in a teaching, a sermon, something else. When you heard it, your heart leapt a little bit, What's going on, I think, is that the Word of God is spoken and that spiritual perception of your heart is grasping that truth and you know You know that what you hear is more than just the mere writings of men, right? Or the speculations of men. They're not the vain philosophies of the world. They are life-giving truths. And that is how we were created to be. Created to be the type of people that look at all that God has done and is doing, not just in the created order, but even in relationships with people who love God, be perceptive of his activity. And because we were created to acknowledge that and not to exchange lies for truth, we find ourselves physically and even psychologically unhealthy when we do that. And the more our reason and moral instinct acknowledge the truth, the harder we must press down God's existence, the worse the effect and consequences in the human body and soul. It's like Wendy and I trying to keep that mattress on the patio. And if you want to know the number one cause for psychological disorder in our world, I do not believe that is external circumstance or biochemical processes, which is not to dismiss those as causes, but rather to say that the number one cause, especially amongst unbelieving men and women, of psychological disorder is this unnatural tension created by enslavement to sin and the suppression of truth. I mean, look at verses 21 to 23 again. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him but they become futile in their thinking. Don't just think that futile is that they have trouble processing things. Futility can also refer to all of the things that are bound up in the human mind and and psyche. Futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools in exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, birds, animals, and creeping things. The late James Boyce noted that in secular psychology there is a a recognized sequence of common human experience known as trauma, repression, and substitution. And he thought this was one of the few instances in which worldly psychology actually gets something right. They've summarized Romans 1. In the case of God's revelation, man encounters something that is ominously threatening i.e. that there is a God with whom I must deal. And that threat is traumatic. If I don't respond in obedience, I will have to face His wrath. That truth is then repressed and substituted with something far less threatening. Listen to what Robert Haldane says about the wrath of God. He says, The wrath of God was revealed when the sentence of death was first pronounced. The earth was cursed, and man driven out of earthly paradise. Afterwards, it was revealed by such examples as, of punishment as those of the flood, the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire from heaven, especially by the reign of death in the world. It was proclaimed by the curse of law in every transgression and intimated in the institution of sacrifice and in all the services under Moses. He goes on, in the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul calls attention to believers to the fact that the whole creation has been subject to vanity and groaneth and travaileth together in pain. This same creation which declares that there is a God and publishes His glory also proves that He is the enemy of sin and the avenger of the crimes of men. But above all, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when the Son of God came down to manifest the divine character and when that wrath was displayed in His sufferings and death in a manner more awful than by all the examples God had given before of His displeasure against sin. So I think it's true, as Boyce says, you know, God's wrath is traumatic. But it's an understatement, really, to say that the threat of God's wrath is is a traumatic to the sinner who must deal with God, uh, because. What it ultimately points to is what we know from the Scriptures that the wrath of God ultimately results in eternal destruction, eternal judgment and hell. And so that truth must be suppressed. But it can't be destroyed. And so man has to do his best to camouflage that knowledge in a way so that its threatening character is concealed or at least dulled and, and so substituted for The creator, all the most foolish things, right? You go down this this declining ladder from man to to animals birds and ultimately to creeping things. And you know in the history of mankind, yes, even the creeping things of the world became idols. And so man becomes a fool. But what kind of fool? Not just an intellectual fool. The word in Greek for fool indicates a moral foolishness. And that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that those who are angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, but whoever insults his brother, liable to the counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to, the, to, the hell, to hellfire, right? And I think I didn't quite get those words out there there for you. So in Jesus's illustration being called a fool was worse than being angry was worse than being giving insult and offense why because foolishness was being both intellectually and morally perverse corrupted and we see what happens in those later verses 26 through 32 when a fool is at work these aren't just an exhaustive list of sins but they are the fruit of depravity. They're bad enough, right? You just go through them one at a time and you say, that's a bad list. Well, those are the types of sins that happen. We see people at first practicing sexual sin and then all kinds of interpersonal and social sin and more, why? Because God in his wrath gives them over to their unnatural desires. And I like how one author has said, the history of the world is the judgment of sin. And what he meant by that is that all the atrocities that make up human history, all the breakdowns of relationships and so much more are the result of God giving over human beings to their chosen way of sin and its consequences. And you see in this list replacement of the natural with the unnatural, the healthy with the unhealthy. Why would someone do that? Because that's what it takes to repress and suppress the the truth of God got to hide it we often think of atheists who don't believe that God exists on the basis of evidence but that's just not the case atheists exist because there is a hatred for the truth of God trying to convince yourself that God does not exist the world says that people wish God to exist right The world says that people fantasize about God existing and so they turn their fantasies into reality through religion, but that is not the case at all. Man's desire is not that God would exist, but that He must not at all costs exist. And so man actually escapes to non-Christian religions to try to avoid the existence of the real God. One commentator says, far from being the preparatory stage in the human quest for God, what he means by that is far from religion being a reflection of of man wanting to try to reach out and, and grasp the divine or something bigger than himself, he says, these religions represent a descent from the truth and are evidence of man's deepest corruption. Think about that and let that sink in for a minute. All of the world's non-Christian religions are evidence of man's deepest corruption because they have exchanged the truth for a lie. And it simply comes down to this. Men do not want to know or do what God asks and requires of them. Remember Paul's words from verse 28, men and women do not see fit to acknowledge God, or as New King James says a little bit better, in my opinion, in this case, men and women do not like to retain God in their knowledge. Do not like? That's right. They would far prefer a God of their own imagining, a God like themselves. Or a God who's so far off, does it require of them. Well, how is God going to respond to that? Do not like to retain them, him in their knowledge. <sighs> It's okay. I know that not everybody likes me. They'll come around. Is that how God responds? Not at all. God is holy. He is the king and the creator. As King David prays in 1 Chronicles 29, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power... And the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. If we looked at matters superficially, we might think, that people would quite naturally welcome God's sovereignty because, after all, what could be better than knowing that everything in the world is actually under his control? But you're thinking like a believer. You're thinking like a believer in that. Who, who wouldn't like the fact that God works out all things according to his purposes? Well, most of the people in the world <laughs> Think about Adam. Adam was to rule the world for God. He was free to go where he wished, to do as he wished. He could eat whatever he wanted with one exception. And that exception was God's reminder that Adam was still under his authority. Still accountable to him. Still required to acknowledge his reign. And as we learned last week, we're always under authority, whether that is the heavy, burdensome death-causing yoke of our own idolatries or the lighter yoke of Jesus Christ. Nothing could have been more irrational than for Adam to put upon his neck the yoke of death by exalting himself over God and eating from that one tree. Nothing more irrational than that. God had told him he would die. When he ate of the tree, there was nothing to be gained from eating and everything to be gained or everything to lose. And yet that tree was a great offense to Adam's independence. And that fallen nature is what we all possess from birth. In reality, we hate God's sovereignty because it is an offense to our independence. We want to run our own lives and control our own fates. We want to roam free, to know no boundary. When we discover that there are boundaries, we, we hate God for the discovery. We act like those described in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces cast away their cords from us. And we could move on through other attributes of God, like holiness, which when it reveals our sin, makes us feel threatened. Or God's omniscience, which exposes every action, every thought, every motive beyond just every action, right? We could even consider God's immutability, the fact that God never changes. You ask, how could that make Man wants to rebel and suppress the truth to learn that God is unchangeable, immutable. Well, think on this. If, If men hate God because he is an infinitely holy, pure, sovereign, and righteous being who knows their every thought and motive because he's omniscient and knows all things, and he's omnipotent, has the ability to follow through on what he says is the consequence, then men certainly will not like God's immutability Because God will always be those things. He will always be infinitely holy, pure, sovereign, righteous, and omniscient, omnipotent. He will never change. If the time could come when God would cease to be sovereign, we could possibly wait him out. When, if he retired, we, well, we could take over. If God's holiness weren't eternal, it wouldn't be so offensive to us if we thought that what God forbids now, he might one day change a little bit, right? Condone like a parent who relaxes his standards over time. Omniscience, well, the time might come when God's memory might fail. Maybe if we would escape some of his notice. But that's just not the case if God's immutable. If he never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and will forever be all of those things. And, and so I'm afraid, no, that all of god's attributes are definitely not what people most people want to acknowledge and it brings us back to what we what i was said earlier about how god must change the heart so that our rebellion will be replaced once again by the natural response of faith to think that those things are actually good Only God can change the fleshly desire to reject, hate, and run from everything that God represents. And so we arrive at verse 32 and it says in his wrath God gives over the wicked to a debased mind to the extent it says that men and women actually approve of those who practice sin. They applaud those who give themselves to sin. I mean a lot of people when they think about that verse especially because this is written in the first century think to the Roman Colosseum as as an example of this but and, and they think of the gladiators who are fighting to the death and the people cheering in the crowd and you know even represented in movies right where the the leader there in the Colosseum puts his thumb up or down you know whether to to take the life of the gladiator And the people cheer. And we go, How could that be? And yet I like how one commentator says, What a telling application, verse 32 has on our own media captivated society, as millions sit in their living rooms watching debauchery, violence, deceit, and other sins, many of which are on Paul's list in Romans 1, and they applaud what they see. It makes little difference. Whether the sins are real or fictionalized, he says the effect is much the same an increasingly depraved mind on the part of the viewer. And need I point out how many of these sins, when we talk about approving of these, how many of these sins have become publicly approved by being enshrined in law, in our society today, or in public policy? So, what do we do with Romans 1? Here's some challenges to think about this week. First, it is sobering to realize that God gives people over to depravity. And what we see happening today in our society and culture are the final stages of a downward spiral into destruction. And so we need to be even more vigilant in prayer for our country and for its people. But remember that as Isaiah 9-2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The gospel is that light. And we need to see how important it is that this word that God has given us as the instrument to break that power of sin, that natural response, that uh, unnatural response of man to the truth that is evident about God, when we realize that the only thing that breaks that is the Word of God, it should be motivating to us to realize that we must shed that light. It is the only hope to break the power of sin. Second, we understand from last week and today that even as we share that gospel, we can neither persuade people through eloquence nor can we persuade them with argument. The issue is not the intellect, it is the heart. And to fix that problem is God's prerogative. We do need to know the gospel. We do need to proclaim it. We need to have the hope that Isaiah talks about, that this light will shine in the darkness, because it's the means through which God has said He will change the heart, but in the final analysis, God, not our arguments, will change people. So as you share the gospel... Be praying that God will make effective what you say. His will be done. Third, Romans 1 still applies to us as believers. Sin has a debilitating effect on the human being. It can lead to the same types of problems for believers on a smaller scale that we see on the larger scale for the unbeliever. And so sometimes if we are struggling with anger, lack of discipline, and so on as As believers, it may be that we are still not resolving issues of disobedience and sin. Fourth, knowing that regeneration precedes faith, again, places our confidence in the integrity and the power of God. And what a comfort it is to know that God is in control. The very attributes that create trauma in the lost, sovereignty, holiness, omniscience, immutability, many others, should drive us instead to proclaim, like David in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, I don't want to suppress that truth. I want to acknowledge what is man that you are mindful of him and the Son of Man that you care for Him, and yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. Isn't that amazing? You have given dominion to Him over the works of your hands and put under Him all things, all sheep, oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. I think author R. Kent Hughes was clever in asking how might might these last verses of Romans 1 apply to believers who love the Lord, who have that kind of attitude as David in Psalm 8 when they stop suppressing the truth. Here's what he wrote. Therefore God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them, For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease even in the most intimate relations so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind To those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindness, they are humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful, and as they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are the possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise." Now, which version describes you in your life? Which version do you want to describe you? Isn't that an important question this morning? Thankfully, there is an answer. And when we go to a different letter of Paul, we find it. They're the words for which I'll close from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were suppressing the truth, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Compare that, contrast that with what is happening with the revelation of God's wrath against all and righteousness of men, and then contrast that with what we see here in Ephesians 2, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not your own doing. As we said, it is the gift of God. Amen? God is good. Share that message with others. Preach it to yourselves. and Become that better version of Romans 1. Let's pray. Father, You are the great and holy, awesome, majestic, immutable, omnipotent, so many more, sovereign. Attributes that we see not only in the universe and creation around us, Lord, but revealed from Your Word. We see your justice and your wrath, your righteousness. And Lord, like David, we say, who is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that we should experience the immeasurable riches of your grace rather than the revelation of your wrath? Thank you, Lord, for breaking the power of sin in our lives That power that drove us to reject and to suppress your truth. That sin that led to all of the unnatural things, unnatural desires, the breakdown of relationships. Thank you, Lord, that through your Spirit's work in us, that you have begun to create in us that better list that we saw. Thank you, Lord, that those things sound so good to us, to be humble, to be kind, to possess life. Lord, thank you for saving us, despite ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.